Hello and welcome to Come Follow Me. This week we're reading the first part of Jacob, chapters 1 through 4. Jacob is Nephi's younger brother. He was born in the wilderness along with his other brother Joseph. We know that both of these were faithful men. Nephi said of his brother Jacob in 2 Nephi chapter 11 verses 2 and 3, And now I, Nephi, write more of the words of Isaiah, for my soul delighteth in his words. For I will liken his words unto my people, and I will send them forth unto all my children. For he verily saw my Redeemer, even as I have seen him. And my brother Jacob also has seen him, as I have seen him. Jacob, we learn, was a special witness of Jesus Christ. We also learn in Jacob chapter 1, verse 18, that Nephi consecrated both Jacob and Joseph as priests and teachers. He says, For I, Jacob, and my brother Joseph have been consecrated priests and teachers of this people by the hands of Nephi. Scholars believe that because these are mentioned as plural, they are not referring to the Aaronic priesthood offices, but rather the actual callings to teach and to preach unto the people called the Nephites, which was no easy task considering the wickedness of the people and the steep downward spiral that they were in at that point. But we must be careful reading these chapters that we don't cast judgment so quickly. Because in Jacob chapter 2 verse 2, we learn something interesting about the Nephites. Jacob says, And now, my beloved brethren, I, Jacob, according to the responsibility which I am under to God, to magnify mine office with soberness, that I might rid my garment of your sins, I came up unto the temple this day that I might declare unto you the word of God. We learn that these Nephites, who are about to be chastised by their new prophet, are active members of the church. He preached to them at the temple. This scene is actually very similar to the general conferences we have twice a year, with one just a few weeks away, which raises the question, how does Jacob or any prophet know what message he needs to deliver unto the people? How does President Nelson and the Quorum of the Twelve know what we need to hear in April? We get a little bit of insight from Jacob chapter 2, verse 5, where he says, And behold, hearken unto me, and know that by the help of the all-powerful Creator of heaven and earth, I can tell you concerning your thoughts, how that you are beginning to labor in sin, which sin appeareth very abominable unto me, yea, and abominable unto God. They know our thoughts? That's a pretty incredible gift. But it's not surprising that the Nephites in Jacob's day were struggling with the three exact same things that we struggle with today. The love of wealth, immorality, and pride. Jacob, however, doesn't want to deliver the message he's been commanded to give. He was a kind man, perhaps soft-spoken, he says in the same chapter, chapter 2, verses 7 and 9, It grieveth me that I must use so much boldness of speech concerning you. Behold your wives and your children, many whose feelings are exceedingly tender and chaste, 
and delicate before God, which thing is pleasing unto God. And it supposeth me that they have come up hither to hear the pleasing word of God, yea, the word which healeth the wounded soul. Wherefore it burdeneth my soul that I should be constrained, because of the strict command which I have received from God, to admonish you according to your crimes, to enlarge the wounds of those who are already wounded, instead of consoling and healing their wounds. And those who have not been wounded, instead of feasting upon the pleasing word of God, have daggers placed to pierce their soul and wound their delicate minds. The message he's giving, he's giving to all, but he's concerned about the innocent among them. But like Nephi, he is strictly obedient to God's will. He says in verse 10, But notwithstanding the greatness of the task, I must do according to the strict commandments of God and tell you concerning your wickedness and abominations. In the presence of the pure in heart and the broken heart, and under the glance of the piercing eye of the Almighty God. Jacob then goes into great detail about their sins. First about their seeking for riches, for the wrong reason. This is found in verses 12 through 9 of the same chapter, chapter 2. Then in verses 20 through 22, he chastises them about their pride. Then at the end of chapter 2, starting in verse 23, he attacks their grosser crimes head-on, those referring to sins of immorality. I, however, would like to go back to chapter 2, verse 5, to a small phrase that teaches a sermon in and of itself. As I read it again, listen to see if you can hear the key words that might not sound so familiar. But behold, hearken unto me, and know that by the help of the all-powerful Creator of heaven and earth, I will tell you concerning your thoughts, how that ye are beginning to labor in sin, which sin appeareth abominable unto me and abominable unto God. Labor in sin? What an interesting phrase. I've pondered this meaning for a very long time. These simple three words give us amazing insight to eternal laws. What I mean by that is when wickedness arises in our life, in our world, there is a lot more labor involved. Think about it. If you live in a neighborhood that has wicked or sinful people living around you, you're going to put locks on your doors, perhaps a security system. You may learn self-defense or even learn how to use a firearm to protect yourself and your family. They'll hire a police force and also fund armies and navies. There's a lot of labor that goes into making you feel safe in an unsafe world. But on the opposite side, if you live in a place of righteousness, you don't need to worry about those things. My grandparents used to tell me stories when I was young about how when they were growing up, they lived in a small little town called Fillmore, Utah. They told me that this little community was so safe that they never locked their doors, not even at night. Everyone was a good, God-fearing person who lived there. 
and they looked after one another, and everyone felt safe. This concept of laboring in sin tells us about the world we live in and the amount of effort we need to put in in order to feel safe. The more wicked we are, the more wicked a people, the more labor is involved to feel peace or to feel safe. However, in a righteous community, among a righteous people, the labor is reduced. There is no labor involved in helping one to feel safe. I'd like to show you two examples of this in the Book of Mormon. First, in Helaman chapter 13, the Nephites are again turning away from God, and sin or unrighteousness becomes the norm. Samuel the Lamanite comes into the scene and warns them to repent or suffer the consequences. In Helaman chapter 13, verses 8 and 9, it says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord, because of the hardness of the hearts of the people of the Nephites, except they repent, I will take away my word from them. I will withdraw my spirit from them. I will suffer them no longer. What that means to suffer is to run to, or you could also consider it, I will no longer have empathy. I will no longer feel what they're feeling. But the scriptural term usually means to run to when it refers to suffer. I will suffer them no longer, and I will turn the hearts of their brethren against them. And four hundred years shall not pass away before I will cause that they shall be smitten. Yea, I will visit them with the sword, and with famine, and with pestilence. What happens to the safety and the security of the people when their enemies are now coming against them? And they have famines, and they have pestilence. This pestilence, when you look it up, is fatal epidemic disease, or a plague. The labor increases exceedingly. Think about what we're experiencing right now in the world. Has the labor of the world increased with the outbreak of this coronavirus? But let's look at a positive example of righteousness and peace. In Alma chapter 1, there was a huge division in the people because the people who were wicked were very wicked and the people who were righteous were very righteous. So much so that they were not even concerned about the evils around them. Listen, if you will, to the description of this righteous people. This is Alma chapter 1, found in verses 27 through 31. And they did in part of their substance, every man according to that which he had to the poor, to the needy, and to the sick, and to the afflicted. And they did not wear costly apparel, yet they were neat and comely. And thus they did establish the affairs of the church, and thus they began to have continual peace, notwithstanding all their persecutions. And now because of the steadiness of the church, they began to be exceedingly rich, having abundance in all things whatsoever they stood in need, an abundance of flocks, and of herds, and of fatlings of every kinds, and also abundance of grain and gold and silver, and precious things, an abundance of silk and fine twine linen, and all manner of good homely cloth. And thus in their prosperous circumstances they did not send away any who were naked, or who were hungry, or who were athirst, 
or who were sick, or that had not been nourished, and they did not set their hearts upon riches. Therefore, they were liberal to all, both old and young, bond and free, male and female, whether out of the church or in the church, having no respect to persons as to those who stood in need. And thus they did prosper and became far more wealthy than those who did not belong to their church. The words rich, abundant, and prosperous appear eight times in these five verses, describing their world that they were living in. But the words that best describe it was in verse 28. Thus they began to have continual peace, less labor with a promise of peace. This principle is scalable. We saw a whole city taken up to be with God when the city of Enoch was translated. Do you think, or do you imagine in your mind's eye, that there existed an EPD, a city of Enoch police department, when they were translated? Or did any of them need firearms for self-defense? You and I both know that the answer is probably not. And though most of us are not ready to be an Enoch-like society, we can see these blessings in our lives today with simple acts of righteousness. If eventually we want to become a city likened to Enoch, or a people like in the book of Alma like I just described, it starts with you. It starts with your family. So this week, I'd like to give you a little test, an experiment to try out. This experiment, however, has to be documented to work. There are certain promises that come with reading the Book of Mormon daily, certain blessings, and a feeling of peace and well-being that comes into your life by doing such a small task. So the challenge is for an entire week, every single day, to read something from the Book of Mormon for an entire week. As you do, I'd like you to write down the feelings that you have. Write down the peace that you feel. How you view the world around you. And then, for the next week, the entire week, don't read the Book of Mormon at all. I know, I know, this sounds a little bit crazy. I'm telling you not to read the Book of Mormon. Just for a week, though, I want you then to notice what happens around you. How the world changes when we don't do this simple task of reading the Book of Mormon. Again, it's important to document this, to write it down in your journal. And then at the end of these two weeks, compare them side by side. And notice the dramatic difference that comes by doing one simple thing that maybe takes less than five minutes. I promise you that you will be amazed at the difference that happens in your life between reading the Book of Mormon and not reading the Book of Mormon. And you may think, well, there's no way that this could make a big difference in my life. It is an incredible difference. The peace you will feel, the experiences you will have, and the revelation you will receive are exponential just by doing a simple little task. Once you recognize this difference, it is then your opportunity to covenant with the all-powerful Creator 
that you will do this every day for the rest of your life. And then have the opportunity of teaching those around you the blessings that come, the testimony you have of the divinity of the Book of Mormon, which will then change their lives. Eventually, you will have an Enoch-like society. But it all starts with you, the one individual, the faithful saint who makes a covenant with God. I wish you peace and joy in your adventure. In the name of Jesus Christ.